We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. From Luke 14, 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. When Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Would you take just a moment to pray with me? Father, our our presence in this room is not by coincidence or really even of our own choosing. That whether we're, we're convinced of the things that we have been praying or singing or whether we're unconvinced or just trying to figure out if we could ever believe these things, we're, we're here because you have brought us here this morning. And so we ask that you would make our hearts and our minds receptive to hear every ounce of good news that you have for us in this text. You alone have the words of life. And so we ask you to speak speak to us this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we've been in a series looking at the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. I've said this every week, that a parable is just another word for stories. Jesus told a lot of stories. Uh, there's, there's one place in Mark chapter 4 where uh, Mark says this. He says, <clears throat> Jesus did not say anything to the crowds 
without using a parable. That is a lot of stories. When you read the Gospels, 75% of Jesus' words were in stories. They were his main method of teaching. And I've tried to touch on this kind of each week in this series, but you know, stories, they just have a unique power to them. Um, researchers have actually found, this is really interesting, that they've discovered that if you listen to a lecture or you kind of just listen to somebody give a PowerPoint presentation with a lot of just bullets or just kind of bare facts, that it only engages a, a certain part of your brain. It engages the, the, the language processing part. That's all that it does. That's the part of our brain where we kind of decode words and kind of figure out their meaning. But when you hear a story, when you listen to a story, your whole brain lights up. Not just the language processing parts, but your, your, your motor cortex, your sensory cortex. I know a lot about the brain, clearly. Actually, I just read something this week. I know nothing about the brain. But, but here's what researchers are saying. Our brains are wired for stories. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that that's because God has wired them that way. You know, I, uh, I kind of work hard every week on trying to come up with some sort of creative outline for you in these sermons. And uh, you never seem to remember them. Yeah, yeah, you never seem to remember them. What, what people remember, you know what people remember from sermons? They remember the stories. That's what they remember. No one says to me, I remember that incredible sermon outline you came up with a year ago. But they will say, you know, I heard you tell a story like five years ago in a sermon. I've never forgotten it. Stories are what grip us. And stories are what change us. And that's why Jesus always uses them. Because get this, Jesus is not just about giving you information. No, he is about transformation. In your life and in my life, he wants to change how we see him. He wants to change how we see ourselves. And he wants to change how we envision what life with him and in him and through him can actually be like, or what the Bible calls life in the kingdom of God. Notice that this story is about just that. It is about the kingdom of God. Jesus is eating in the house. Let me set the scene. He's eating the house of a religious person. And in verse 15, one of the guests says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And it's that statement that prompts this parable. Jesus, in the very next verse, he starts telling this story. And it's a story about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God, it's, a, it's kind of a mysterious thing. It's, it's a little enigmatic. You know, even for those of you who've been around the church for a while, or maybe you've kind of, you feel like you kind of know a little bit of the Bible, like, it, 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 can you summarize the kingdom of God in a nutshell? It's not that easy. It, it's mysterious. In fact, get this. In Luke 17, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here. It's, it's present. And then two chapters later in Luke 19, he says, the kingdom of God is coming. In other words, it's, it's not here in his future. Which is it? I mean, it's strange. You know, it's, it's kind of like cryptocurrency. Everybody is talking about it. Does anyone understand it? 
If you do, come tell me after the, after the service. Give me some tips. I welcome, I welcome these things. The kingdom of God is a, is a mysterious thing. Francis Spufford, he's a Christian author. He says this. He says, Jesus talks about the kingdom all the time, every day, almost every hour. And when he talks about it, he skips from analogy to analogy. He does not say what it is, only what it is like. The kingdom, he seems to be saying, is something that can only be glimpsed in comparisons because the world contains no actual examples of it, and yet the world glints and winks and shines everywhere with the possibility of it. Jesus talks about the kingdom all the time, constantly. It's hard to grasp, but get this, to become a Christian to live as a Christian, to grow as a Christian, you must grasp the kingdom of God. What do we learn about the kingdom of God in this story? Three things. You're not going to remember any of them tomorrow, but I'm going to give them to you because they're going to help us track a little bit with where we're going. The kingdom of God, number one, it's a party. Number two, it's a party and you're invited. And number three, once you accept the invitation to that party, your life is never the same again. It's a party, you're invited. And once you come to that party, your life is never the same again. So first, the kingdom of God is a party. First thing to notice in this passage, when this guest said, he says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. He calls the kingdom of God a feast. And then what does Jesus do? He tells a story about a feast. He tells a story about a party. You know, in other places, Jesus says things like this. He says, the kingdom of God, it's like a treasure hidden in a field. Or the kingdom of God, it's like this tiny mustard seed that grows into this beautiful tree. Or the kingdom of God, it's like this pearl of great price. But here, he says, the kingdom of God is like a great party. It's like a great feast. Now, we need to pause here for just a moment because this is not the first time that the Bible has talked about the kingdom of God that way. In Isaiah chapter 25, Old Testament prophet, he says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will prepare for all peoples a feast of rich food, a banquet of well-aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Now, many of you, you've been to those kinds of parties. You've been to parties with good food and good wine. But, but Isaiah continues, listen to this. Then he says, at this feast, God will swallow up death forever. And he will wipe away the tears from all faces. Now, you know what? No one has been to that party yet. You know why? Because it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened yet. But Jesus is saying in this parable, it is going to happen. See, we, we argue about whether or not the world has actually gotten better over time. The reality is that all cultures at all times, they are marked by death, disease, evil, and suffering. I mean, when we talk about has, have things really gotten better, we're really just talking about differences in degrees. But Jesus says that there is a day coming where the world is going to be put to rights. 
this, this future celebration. Where, I mean, hear this. Loneliness will be no more. Cancer will be no more. You know, betrayal will be no more. Depression will be no more. Addiction will be no more. Orphaned children will be no more. All of our sadness and all of our joylessness will be gone forever and all things will be made new. I want to ask you a question this morning. What is broken about your life this morning? What are you grieving? What are your disappointments? What do you feel like will never change or you will never get over or recover from? The kingdom of God says whatever those things are, one day they will be gone. You know, think with me for just a moment about Jesus' miracles. His miracles. Jesus, he did a lot of miracles. And he could have done any miracle. I mean, he could have done anything. What would you do if you could do anything? I, would, I think I would fly. I think that'd be pretty cool. You know, in, in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, you know what one of the temptations from the devil is? Is that he would fly. And he doesn't do it. He refuses. You know, or think about all the times Jesus got in a boat to go to the other side of the lake. I mean, this is, this is slow travel, right? Why not, just, why not just transport himself? He could have done that. Meet you guys on the other side, you know? Hope you make it through the storm. I heard it's going to be pretty nasty out there today. He doesn't do that. He never does that. Every single miracle that Jesus does in the Gospels, it has a common thread. And you know what that thread is? Every single one of them deals with human suffering. People are hungry, and he feeds them. And people are sick, and he heals them. And people are dead, and he raises them back to life. And in moments, their lives are threatened by chaos in nature, and he stills the storm. What does this tell us? What does it mean that Jesus' miracles deal with suffering and disease and evil and death? What does that mean? You know, the, the main word that the New Testament uses to describe Jesus' miracles, it's, they call them signs. Miracles are signs. What's the purpose of a sign? You're driving down the road. You cut someone off, they give you a sign. They're not telling you that you're number one. If that's what you thought, I want to enlighten you this morning. Maybe you're not from America. I don't know if this is a, a universal thing. But they're not telling you that you're number one. But they are telling you something else. And, and the point is that they're telling you something. That's what signs do. Signs point to a deeper reality. Jesus' miracles are signs that point us to the reality of the kingdom of God and what the world will be like when he comes again. No one gets sick. No one is hungry. I said this last week. You never have to say goodbye to anyone again. 
Death is no more. He is going to heal everything and it will be the party of all parties forever. Don't you long for that party? I mean, I don't, it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum of belief this morning. You're here this morning and you're a Christian. You're here this morning and you're just trying to figure out if you could ever believe this stuff. Every single person in this room, we long for a world like that. We long for that world. You know what we're like in this world? We're like beached whales. You know what a beached whale is? It's alive, but not for very long. And it is not having a very good time. We were not, we were not made for this world. We were made for this world that Jesus is bringing. It's, it's when you get the whale back into the water that its capacities take off. And friends, you are going to soar in the kingdom of God. You will be who you have always wanted to be. The disappointment that you feel about yourself and your life every single day, that will be no more. God is going to heal you, and he's going to heal the world. It's a party. The kingdom of God is a party. Number two, you're invited. When this guest says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God, you know what Jesus does? He says, well, let me tell you a little story about who's going to be there and who won't. That's what this story is about. That's what this parable is about. And what Jesus does in this story is he encapsulates all of humanity into two groups. Two groups of people. Those who will be at this party and those who won't. And Jesus is saying every single person fits into one of those two groups. Now, I want you to notice this. Some of you are like, whoa, that sounds a little scary. We, we talked about hell last week, actually. But I want you to notice this. Both groups in this story, both of them are invited. Both of them are invited. Everyone is invited, but not everyone comes. And of course, what Jesus is saying in this parable is, who's the host? God is the host. God is the one who is inviting them. Let me just, a couple passages for you, for you here from uh, the New Testament. Second, uh, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Do not forget this one thing. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Revelation chapter 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, says Jesus. And anyone who opens, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. John chapter 3, 16. For God so loved the world. It doesn't get wider than that, friends. It doesn't get more inclusive than that. This is an invitation that is for the world. The question is not, are you invited? The question is, will you come? And the answer to that question is determined by the main difference between these two groups of people in this passage. Look at the first group. This is a group that doesn't come, right? Verses 17 through 20. One doesn't come because they've just bought a piece of land. Only, only well-off people owned land in the first century. The other doesn't come because they've got to take care of their oxen. You know, only people who were wealthy owned animals like this. The other doesn't come because they just got married. And you say, well, isn't that kind of a decent excuse to not show up to a friend's party? 
But no, listen, to be married in this culture meant you had status. And to be single meant you didn't have status. You were nobody. What do all of these people in this first group have in common? They are successful. They are wealthy. Life is going well for them. And they are too distracted and they're too busy to need God. But look at who does come. Look at this other group in verse 21. The poor. The crippled. The blind. The lame. These were people who had no wealth. And they had no status. They had no social standing. They had no future. What is the main difference? Jesus says, let me, let me boil it all down. Two groups of people in humanity. What is the main difference between these two groups? The first group has no need. The second group, all they have is need all they've got. Christine Pohl, who's a Christian author, she says this about this passage. God's guest list includes a disconcerting number of poor and broken people, those who appear to bring little to any gathering except their need. John Stott puts it this way. He says, to become a Christian, all you need is need. And then he says this, but very few people have that need. You know, that's exactly how Jesus begins his very first sermon. His very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about the kingdom of God. The very first sentence, the intro, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are two kinds of people when it comes to religion. Those who are poor in spirit and those who are middle class in spirit. The, the middle class in spirit have no need. This is, and this might be you this morning. See, do you say, well, I'm not perfect. Nobody is. But I'm not, I'm also not that bad either. I try to be generous. I try to be kind. I try to treat others how I want to be treated. And maybe you do. And what, what Jesus is saying is, if that's you, your main problem is actually not your badness. <laughs> it's your goodness. Your goodness can be just as much of a barrier between you and Jesus as your badness. Your morality, maybe even your religiosity. You know, Jesus, you know who he's telling this parable to? A bunch of religious people who think that they're going to be at this party. And if that's you, what I want to suggest to you is it's not that the gospel is too archaic for you or too primitive for you. It's too humbling for you. It's too hard to admit your need. You're, look what you've done in life. Look who you've become. Look at all the other people who are underneath you in society. And so you don't see your need. But the poor in spirit, all they see is their need. You don't bring any goodness or merit of your own. No, no, there's one way to come to Jesus, and that is empty-handed. 
Now, it, it reminds me of that, that famous hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Now, this passage is not saying, let me be very clear here, it is not saying that only poor people get into the kingdom of God. But it is hinting at the fact that they are much more prone to see their need, to feel their need, to feel their moral and spiritual bankruptcy before God. Listen, friends, Christianity does not say that the good are in and the bad are out. That is not Christianity. That, that is basically every other religion. But it is not Christianity. Christianity does not say the good are in and the bad are out. It doesn't even say the religious are in and the irreligious are out. No, it says that the humble are in and the proud are out. It says that those who see their need and run to Jesus are in, and those who think they have no need are out. And this passage actually gives you a test to kind of determine which of those you are. And the test comes in verse 23. In one word, actually, the host says to his servant about the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. He says this, he says, go out, and here's the word, compel them to come in. Compel them. He doesn't say invite them. He says compel them. Why would you have to compel them? You'd have to compel them because people like this would not believe that they would be invited to a party like this. I will never forget baptizing a woman who was from Japan. She'd grown up in Japan. She moved to the States. And, you know, Japan is like one, less than 1% Christian. No one in her family was Christian growing up. She didn't know any Christians growing up. She grew up in a country where there were hardly any Christians. And then she moved here and she, she met Jesus. And when I was baptizing her, she said to me, she said, I still can't believe that God chose me. Several years ago, I was having coffee with a woman who'd been attending our church for several months. She was homeless, had been homeless for many, many years, had lived a very, very hard life. We're having coffee one day, and she said, Pastor, you said on Sunday that God loves me. And she said, for the first time in my life, I believe that. And for the first time in my life, I want to live. Two people amazed that God would love them. And that's the test. Do you think, of course God loves me. Of course God invites me. Of course God accepts me. Or do you think it is amazing that I'm a Christian?
that God would love me. See, those who are poor in spirit know that salvation, it's always a miracle. It's always a miracle, whether you have grown up in a Christian home all your life and can't remember a day in your life where you didn't know the gospel and weren't following Jesus, or whether you have kind of some dramatic conversion story later in life. Salvation is always a miracle. You have been invited. And guess what? Once you've accepted that invitation, your life begins to radically change. You're never the same again. And this is the third point, and this is very important because if we just stopped here, we'd be missing something really important about this parable. We're we're missing something if we think this is just about how you get into the kingdom of God. It's not just about how you get into the kingdom of God. It's how the kingdom of God begins to change your life. This future party and feast that your life is headed towards, it begins to invade your life in the present, and it changes it. And the reality is, is that when you become a Christian, it changes your life in all sorts of ways. I mean, all sorts of ways. There's nothing in your life that Jesus doesn't touch. He touches your money. He, 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 he changes who you date and how you date. He changes your marriage. He changes your parenting. He changes how you think about your vocation and your career. He changes how you suffer. He changes what you do in retirement. He changes how you respond when people hurt you and wrong you. Jesus changes everything. But there is one thing that he is pointing out in this passage that he changes in particular. And it's in verses 12 through 14. It's at the very beginning, actually. He says, when you give a luncheon or dinner... Do not invite your friends, your brothers, or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. And some of you are thinking, I never have to invite my family over again. (laughs) I like this. Right on, Jesus. Stopped doing it a long time ago. Glad to know you were cool with it. You know, or or, uh, let, let me just say this. No. Jesus would never contradict other parts of the Bible that talk about honoring your father and mother. You know, or, you know, Jesus says, don't invite your friends. Can you imagine going to your friends, especially if, like, they're not particularly religious, and saying, you can't come to my house anymore? I mean, that's going to make Jesus very appealing, you know. You can't come to my house, but, hey, you want to go to church on Sunday? What is Jesus saying What is he saying? Look at the rest of the verse. If you invited these people, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. So when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the same people that he was just talking about that come to the party, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection. Now, Jesus is using an idiomatic expression to make a point, and the point is this. The point is... Our propensity is to be in relationship with people who can benefit us in some way. And Jesus is not just saying, don't do that. This is what he's saying. He's saying, if you know me, if you're a part of my kingdom, you will not do that. Your life will be marked by deeds of mercy and compassion to the needy. 
and to the poor and to the marginalized and to those who are, in, uh, who, who are oppressed. He is saying you will invite them literally into your home, into your bank account, into your life, into your time. That is the change that the kingdom of God brings about. And you might be thinking, okay, wait a minute. So this kind of sounds like it's just social workers that go to heaven. Think for just a moment about a grapevine. You know, how do you know that a vine has life? By the fruit, right? You know it by the fruit. But it's not that the fruit gives the vine life. It doesn't give the vine life. No, it actually reveals that the vine is alive. Love for the poor and the needy, it reveals a heart that is alive to the love of Jesus. Because when you begin to understand that you are spiritually poor and God has loved you, you know what happens? You begin to move into the lives of those who are materially poor and you love them. And if you know God, that will happen in your life. And it may be slow, but it will come. And Jesus is saying, if it doesn't come, then you may not have the relationship with me that you think that you have. In other words, friends, this is not optional in the Christian life. Jesus is not making suggestions for you if you follow him. He is saying, this is what my people do. I mean, listen to this. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says something. This is so astonishing. He says that on the final judgment day, God is going to divide humanity into two groups of people. And on one side will be those who will be a part of his eternal kingdom. And on the other side are those who won't. And to those who won't, this is what Jesus says. He says, to those who won't, God will say, when you failed to love the poor, you failed to love me. And when you failed to feed the hungry, you failed to feed me. And when you failed to care for those in need, you failed to care for me. And Jesus says, but they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes? And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. That is an incredible statement. It's one that I'm not sure I've really grasped. Jesus says he so identifies with the poor and the needy and the marginalized that whatever you do to them, you do to him. Why would Jesus say that? How could Jesus say that? How could God say that? You know, we tend to think that this idea that Jesus identifies with the poor, we think, well, that's a, that's a nice idea, but it actually goes much deeper than that. Because Jesus says, don't say to God on judgment day, when did you see me thirsty? And when did you see me naked? And when did you see me in need? You know why Jesus says that? Because that was his entire life. His entire life, Jesus was born poor. 
He was not born into prominence and privilege. No, Jesus was born in a feeding trough for animals. He actually left riches to come into this world. And and then when he was just a couple days old, the Gospels say that his parents took him to the temple to circumcise him, and they made a sacrifice, as every parent did. And you know what they sacrificed? Two pigeons. You know who sacrificed pigeons? Poor people. If you had means, you sacrificed a lamb, but not Jesus' parents, because they were poor. He was born poor. He lived poor. Jesus had very little by way of material possessions. He was essentially homeless. In fact, he said this, he said, foxes have holds and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Most of his material needs were provided by a group of devoted women who gave generously to him. He lived poor. He died poor. When Jesus rode into into Jerusalem to die, you know what he rode on? A borrowed donkey. When he ate with his disciples on the very last night before his death, you know where they ate? They ate in a borrowed room. You know where he was buried? In a borrowed tomb. He died poor. And he didn't just die poor. Listen to this. He died blind. They put a blindfold around his eyes and they yelled at him, prophesy who crucified you, who hit you. He died blind. He died naked. He was stripped of everything. He died crippled. His body was broken. And you see, on the cross, here's what we see. We see just how far God was willing to go to identify with the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And he did it all for you and me. He was not just identifying with the material poor on the cross. No, he was actually standing in the place of those who are spiritually poor. He was taking the just judgment that we deserved so that we could come into the party of God's kingdom. And that is the invitation of this table to you this morning. This table says... That you need one thing to come to God. Need. You bring nothing to this table. You don't bring your morality. You don't bring your religiosity. You don't bring your efforts. All you bring is your need. It's, It's not a potluck. And that's so humbling for us. But friends, there is nothing that will take you higher than this table. Because in this meal, God is saying, you know what God says to you in this meal? He says, I know you, and I love you, and I have spared nothing, not even myself, to have you. And I am making you new. And one day, I am going to make all things new, and it will be the party of all parties. And this feast points us to the promise of that feast. The question I want to ask you this morning is, have you accepted that invitation? Maybe you're here, and you've, you've been coming for a little while, and you've been trying to figure out 
Can I believe these things? And you have been on the fence. There's an amazing line in this parable, and it's in verse 22, where the servant, he goes out and then he comes back and he says to the host, he says, there's still room. And what I want you to hear today is there is still room. There is room for you. God loves you. God wants you. This table says God is inviting you. And you can accept that invitation today if you never have. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And the promise of this table is that he indeed will. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks for the invitation that you have laid before us at this table to come, not to clean ourselves up, not to try to get our life together, but to simply come as we are in all of our mess, in all of our brokenness, in all of our sadness, and to lay it at your feet knowing that you will receive us and welcome us with joy. Help us to believe that this morning, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. For those of you who are here this morning and you're not Christian, and maybe you're not ready to cross that line into faith, we are so glad that you are here this morning. We think that of all places in the world you should feel most welcome is actually the church. This is a church where you can come in with all of your questions, all of your doubts, all of your skepticism, we are glad that you are here and we welcome you into this church. And this is a church where you can actually come and be in process of those things. So what does that mean for you this morning? It means that as people around you eat and drink, you should not. You should feel free to not do something that is not reflective of where you are in your own spiritual journey. But if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you know that all you have is need, friend, God invites you to this table and he wants to give you everything. Let me invite you to tear off the top of your communion packet. You'll find a wafer located in the very top. This is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. Let's eat together. blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Let's drink together. Father, as you have invited us by your grace and by your kindness and only because of your son to this table, would you send us out this week to be people that reflect your very heart? May we become the kinds of hosts that you are.
May we be people who love the poor and who care for the needy and are actually seeking to get really creative about the ways that we do that. As you have given everything to us, help us to be people who are responding with all that we have for you and for your kingdom in this city that you love so deeply. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.